Hello and welcome to another episode of NBRI New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies at Maine Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair Professor of Marketing. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Mara Scott, who is Persis E. Rockwood Professor of Marketing in the Department of Marketing at Florida State University College of Business. Morris' research interests include consumer behavior, consumer and societal well-being, public policy, and services marketing. She's interested in studying how to help improve consumers' financial health and food decisions, particularly among vulnerable populations. Mara is the president-elect designate of the American Marketing Association's Academic Council. She also serves on the board of directors for the Association for Consumer Research as the Industry Perspectives Director. In addition, she is co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing. Morris' research has been published in leading scholarly journals, including the Journal of Marketing Research, the Journal of Consumer Research, to name a few. She's held managerial positions at 3M Dial Corporation and Motorola. She earned her PhD from the Arizona State University. Thank you, Mara, for joining me in this conversation today. How have you been the last one year or so? Yeah, um, I'm doing fine. I'm grateful for this opportunity. So thank you so much, first of all, for this tremendous uh, privilege to speak with you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I gave uh, a boilerplate description of you, but uh, I'm sure you're richer than that. How would you best describe yourself? Maybe in a few words, maybe five attributes that best describes you. Yeah, I, I would be happy to do that. Um, if I had to identify five words that I think capture where my mind has been and where my vision is, I would say uh, gratitude, um, especially over the course of what we've seen transpiring in the world. Um, I'm very reflective on that um, and very grateful for uh, where my life is. Uh, optimism. Um, I think work ethic is also something that for me is a, a defining word and it's something uh, that guides my approach uh, to my career. Um, well-being, uh, because this is uh, an area that my research focuses on. I'm interested uh, both in my role as a scholar, my role as an educator, and my role as an editor. Um, focusing on well-being. Um, and then the final word uh, I would share would be inclusiveness. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll get to talk about some of the strategic uh, work that I've been doing with the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing, uh, because this inclusiveness was actually the foundation for the strategic plan that my co-editor and I uh, used as we built up our pillars for, for the journal uh, and uh, that we've been enacting in that regard. So those are the words that um, are always I'm carrying with me as I um, kind of get through my work day and get through my life. <laughs> Splendid. And I will talk more about especially your work and philosophies and well-being, inclusiveness. But uh, before we get to that, can you briefly describe your research journey? Where did you get started and how did you want to uh, 
become a marketing scholar and engage in research on these kind of topics. So let's hear a little bit uh, about your background. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, uh, prior to this academic career, I um, worked for a few large companies. Um, I worked in new product development at 3M Company up in the headquarters in Minnesota. I also worked in brand management at the Dial Corporation, and I worked in marketing also at Motorola. And these were all very rewarding experiences in different ways. Um, but I think one thing that stood out to me uh, through all of those journeys is uh, that I wanted to address the questions that we were trying to tackle across those firms at a higher level of abstraction. And I felt that um, this academic career uh, as a researcher uh, gave me the opportunity to do that. And so uh, my research journey actually started looking uh, by looking at the role of marketing in influencing food consumption and well-being. So that uh, was my dissertation work that continued uh, in developing uh, with uh, co-authors this concept of food well-being and how consumers can interact with the marketplace in a way that's going to promote their health and well-being, as well as the well-being of society. And so um, that's sort of how this journey began for me. And um, it, it's been fantastic. That's awesome to hear. Now, you mentioned food and well-being are one of the pillars or cornerstones of uh, society's uh, issues today. Uh, even as we speak, and uh, we know that uh, uh, obesity and uh, uh, diabetes, these are some of the big uh, um, problems that are facing the U.S. Uh, consumers today. Um, how hard was it for you to um, to uh, start working on a sensitive topic like this where people are struggling and yet we need some solutions? I, I think that's... Um, uh, uh, very good question. And the reason is that when you think about diseases like obesity, these are um, diseases that are stigmatized. And um, in fact, one of the recent uh, papers that was just, uh, just uh, forthcoming in the Journal of Marketing Research um, that I worked on with my co-authors ad addressed just that question. Um, so if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share it with you a little bit about that research. Um, sure, because I, I great think, opportunity, yeah. Uh, so one of the uh, things that I was interested in is when you think about health, health decision-making and well-being, um, different disease states bring with them different types of social judgments from the outside world. So you know, some diseases uh, like obesity, like um, HIV, like, uh, you know, these diseases where uh, the outside world perceives that the patient has some control over them um, and maybe played a part in uh, sort of uh, getting to that disease state can carry with them uh, stigma, diseases right. that are perceived as contagious, um, can also cause stigma. Whereas other diseases, if you think about a disease like uh, breast cancer, um, it's a disease that doesn't actually carry very much stigma with it. There's certainly many other challenges that go with that disease, but it's not a highly stigmatized disease. 
So in our research, uh, we worked with a company, uh, a healthcare firm that was uh, trying to figure out how to get patients more engaged in their healthcare by interacting with others. And so as you can imagine, when a person has a disease that's highly stigmatized, it's tough to, to say, you know, I wanna go out and talk with other people about this. Um, and so this was our challenge. Uh, what we knew from prior literature and from some of the insights that the company had is that when patients are more engaged, when they're co-producing with other patients, with other healthcare experts, that it's actually promoting uh, better health outcomes for that person. So there's a very good reason to find solutions to uh, promote this sort of interactive activity. The dialogue, or, yeah. Absolutely. And so yeah. uh, this is what we did in our research. Uh, the firm had a database. And of, what did you find? Yeah, so what we found is, is that uh, people with highly stigmatized illnesses were open to interacting with others, but they needed to know that those people who were going to be in those online communities with them um, shared their disease, that there were, they were not going to encounter this um, threat of social devaluation and social um, judgment. The other really important piece that uh, we found through that research is that people who have these highly stigmatized diseases were also more vulnerable to uh, what we call high risk, high reward solutions. So they were willing to take big risks in order to get out of that disease state, even if those risks came with, you know, even greater uh, risk of uh, uh, health problems. And so getting into a community to talk about solutions that are maybe uh, in the person's uh, best interest is something that was really important. So that was a, a really exciting project that uh, allowed me to bring together some of these things that I, were weighing on me as a scholar and also that I felt could truly help to make people's lives better. And that's very interesting because uh, in this day of social media and social age where people are constantly on one media or the other, how does this fact that they can engage with uh, admittedly a uh, community that uh, also shares some of these issues, how does that uh, really play out? Are people more open to come out and discuss this uh, in those forums are people are still stigmatized and reserved about it and what do marketers have to do whether to say marketer of uh, you know healthy food or marketer of uh, healthcare solutions um, what do they have to do to get people to to be more engaged in this so that they can find better solutions yeah, I, I think that's a, a great question. I think one of the things that uh, companies must do is make it clear to the uh, customers, to the patients, that this is a, um, you know, going to be a very safe environment. So it's an open environment, but it's going to be a judgment-free environment. Um, and that maybe there are some sort of 
protections built into the system to encourage a fruitful dialogue among the people who are in the group. Right, that uh, brings me to the issue of technology in here, right? You also do some work on, uh, you know, uh, robots, humanoids, and so on. Because the, one of the uh, uh, trends that we notice now, consumers are increasingly dependent on using these devices, you know, all types of mobile devices, wearables, smart speakers, which are reminding. Uh, what is the role of those kind of devices in helping people get well, you know, stay well? Because uh, you, one of the uh, constant tension is that uh, if you have a smart speaker like Alexa, which reminds you, or Siri, which tells you to take your uh, prescription medications, uh, it's kind of good, uh, but at the same, in, at the same time, it could be annoying and nagging to a certain extent. And if a Siri or an Alexa tells you, hey, you're consuming too many cookies or you're not, you are buying too, ma too much of dessert uh, in your grocery shopping today. So what do you think is the role of these uh, smart speakers or devices in helping uh, consumers deal with this problem? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about that twofold. So um, one of the projects that we currently, uh, our team has underway right now is looking at exactly what you just described. You know, you said like, well, you know, Siri and Alexa are doing these things for us. And um, so, you know, when we give these objects names and personalities, essentially what we're doing is anthropomorphizing them. In, we're imbuing these human-like characteristics on something that isn't actually human. And what we are finding, we, we had a chance to um, uh, look at fitness trackers. So wearable fitness trackers like an Apple Watch or uh, a Fitbit, for example. And we uh, were able to give people in our study uh, these uh, fitness bands to wear over time. And we were interested in two elements of that. The first element has to do with exactly what you're talking about, which is like, when you hear about something like Siri or you, you know, give this object a personality, um, there's a lot of good research that would suggest that, you know, we like that. We tend to uh, be attracted to uh, these objects that are humanized. So if we're presented with an anthropomorphized version of a product and a non-anthropomorphized version of the product, we think that we're going to like this anthropomorphized product more. And this has implications for managers because you know, we would see more sales. In fact, one of the studies we did, uh, we actually just ran a, a Google AdWords study to either advertise an anthropomorphized fitness uh, tracker or a neutral one. And what we found is that there were significantly more people clicking on that anthropomorphized one. Customers are interested in that. But we were also interested in what happens over time to health motivation, right? So I like this thing, it's anthropomorphized. You know, I've got it on my arm and I wanna get my steps in so that I can be more fit. And, you know, I'm more favorable to that anthropomorphized one coming out of the gate. But what we found is that over time, uh, the, there's a decline in terms of health motivation. So liking, do I like the thing? Sure. 
and that encourages this initial purchase. But over time, the health motivation in using the anthropomorphized one drops relative to the neutral one. And so this also could have implications for a company because we want to have loyal customers. It's one thing to make one sale, but we want to maintain a longer term relationship with that customer uh, by having them maintain their motivation and get the outcomes that they want from that product. So I think that that's an interesting uh, example from the standpoint of um, it's important as a manager to uh, think very carefully about uh, how technology is rolled out to consumers and what that means, not just for the short term, but also over the long term in terms of having like this cradle to grave relationship with a customer. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but let's uh, unpack it a little bit more. Now, you mentioned that over time, people lose health motivations. Uh, and is that because people perceive these uh, humanized devices as uh, creepy or some kind of uh, intrusive or some kind of annoying or irritating uh, companions? Or is it because they feel like, uh, I would like to engage with this uh, humanized robot for other pleasurable or, you know, uh, fun activities, entertainment uh, activities, but I don't want this to be my grandmom or mom, right? Reminding me what to do, right? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent- Do you think- Please. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, really interesting. And you brought up a, a great term that I like, creepy. <laughs> and uh, in fact, we've done some research with humanoid robots in healthcare services, among other services, but also healthcare services. And we know that one of the things that happens to people when they are encountering a humanoid robot a robot that has arms and legs and a face and eyes, and it's supposed to be sort of like a person. When consumers encounter these humanoid robots in a service context, they do feel that they're creepy. Yeah, um, they're creepy and they uh, can create a sense of anxiety. And, and I think that this is an opportunity for research, continued research. We started in that way, but I think that's just, the beginning of the conversation. And there have been other great research teams also adding to this important conversation. Um, because what we know is when you think about something like consumer well-being and health well-being, um, a key component of that is containing costs, right? We wanna be able to deliver the best product or service to as many people as possible so that people can you know, retain their dignity and uh, their health as they go through their healthcare journey. So uh, when we think about that, one way to con contain costs is to use technology to sort of uh, provide some of the functionality uh, that they can replace some human workers so that the humans can maybe do some of the more specialized work that technology can't fulfill. Um, so we know that there's this opportunity to use the technology as a cost saving, but 
at least for the moment, consumers find these types of technologies to be creepy and to be anxiety inducing. And so I think for companies who think about uh, using robots as part of the service provision, which by the way, is already you know, well-established in, in various industries, um, the challenge will be how do we increase the comfort level and decrease the anxiety of consumers and uh, do away with this sense of creepiness so that consumers are willing to accept uh, this service provision. Um, and, right. and so that's something we think, are continuing to explore. Now that, that's a very interesting path for you to research going forward. But when we talk about uh, enabling consumers to eat well, healthy, and also stay healthy by exercising uh, healthy, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, also the fact that how do we enable the society to be also following ethically and moral uh, principles? You know, you mentioned inclusiveness or inclusion as part of your focus in research. How do we make sure that, uh, you know, with this technology, the robots coming into play, they have their biases. How do we make sure that these uh, um, technologies or devices are also making sure that we have greater inclusiveness and inclusion in our society? Yeah, I, I think that's a, um, a good point. I, I think that when we look at uh, technologically based offerings in the marketplace, it's important to acknowledge that those are uh, still programmed and designed by humans. We're not perfect. We show okay. up with all of our uh, inherent and implicit biases. And so I think acknowledging that at the development stage and taking steps to ensure that these products are not sort of hardwired with bias baked in is one important step in addressing that. And, and this is uh, where I think marketing truly can have an impact uh, because marketing needs to be part of that design discussion and uh, um, addressing sort of uh, these ethical concerns as we develop and introduce um, offers in, into the marketplace. Excellent. So what is your own research on uh, inclusion and inclusiveness uh, lead us? Uh, tell us some of the findings and insights that you have about it so that we can be better informed. Sure, yeah. So there's a, a project I'm very excited about. Um, this uh, paper was just published in the Journal of consumer psychology recently. And uh, one of the things that I like to do- Congratulations. In my own, oh, thank you. Um, so <laughs> one of the things I like to do in my uh, research is I like to work with companies. So even though I'm a more traditional consumer behavior researcher coming out of business, I like to work with firms uh, to conduct the research. And so um, one of the things that I was uh, doing is uh, just on an ongoing basis, working with a bank in our uh, local community here um, in, in the university town. And uh, this bank was interested in something that we were also very concerned about, which is banking deserts. So a banking desert is basically a, a lower income community that 
um, doesn't have access, easy, convenient access to traditional banking services. So instead of relying on um, a traditional bank, if that a person got a paycheck, they might go to a payday loan service uh, to cash their paycheck or a, a check cashing service, um, or even a pawn shop to sort of manage and navigate right. basic financial needs. Non-banking institutions and establishments, yeah. yeah. That's right. And, and these uh, establishments often um, uh, employ very expensive interest rates, for example, that are yeah, make it very difficult very unfair, for people yeah. to, to, to save and to uh, build wealth for the future. And so um, the uh, CEO of this bank that we worked with was also very concerned about this and wanted to open a branch in this community. Um, but the challenge was how to build trust because um, many uh, underrepresented communities also have a history of being um, treated poorly and sometimes even exploited by financial Taking advantage, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so one of the challenges it was, how do we convince folks that this is a place that they can trust and that they can begin to wealth build for themselves? Um, and one of the interesting things that we found, we did some field experiments where we worked with clients of this um, bank in the banking desert, as well as clients in their other branches is we found that the consumers in the banking deserts were concerned about their own financial well-being, but they also were interested and concerned about whether that bank was going to also uh, support their community. So they had this need in uh, need for communal financial well-being, right? So for Very a nice. bank to persuade. Uh, customers to uh, build a relationship, those customers need to know that you're not only supporting me, but you're also supporting my community. Supporting the entire community. Not, not the same for the uh, non-banking desert communities because they're kind of like, our communities are flourishing. If I don't use this bank, I use another bank. But it was uh, much more closely held. And so for me, this was uh, another example of how messaging that firms use may need to be different for vulnerable communities if we want to include those communities. And by the way, you know, the uh, traditional uh, population is pretty saturated as a market. So this gave the bank an opportunity to expand into new uh, a new market as well. So really was a win-win type of solution with that research. So yeah, yeah. that's a very interesting finding because what you're saying is the value proposition is not directed at the consumer only, but it's also uh, connected with the society of the consumer, the community of the consumer. And, you know, you can apply this uh, to other areas, not just in banking. If you think about inclusiveness, for example, in hiring, recruitment, and making sure that uh, underrepresented minorities are well represented, the one way to to market this would be to communicate this would be to say, hey, come and join our team. You know, we will we have plans to recruit more people from your community or more people like you so that, uh, you know, you can feel comfortable or trusted at home. So it looks like your finding is very generalizable across situations. Would you agree? 
I think so. I, I uh, certainly hope so. And I'm looking forward to continuing to explore that area in the future. That is awesome. Uh, now, looking forward, what are some of the areas or uh, topics that you think uh, require further research? Or what are some of the topics that you yourself are working on um, going forward? You know, if you could just look toward in the next three to five years. Absolutely. So one of the things that I have been thinking about is um, the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing. Um, right. So I just started this ed editorship in uh, July of, of 2020, and it's a three-year term. And one of the reasons that I wanted to take on this role is I feel that one of the things that will be important for us over the next five, 10, even 20 years is this interrelationship between consumers, organizations, society, and government and policymakers. Right. Um, and we've seen this play out, I mean, in a very vivid way over the last 12 months, right? Right. Um, and, and so um, as, as we thought about what does this future look like? What does this future look like for marketing, public policy, individual and societal well-being? Well um, for us, the foundation of this was inclusivity. And as we built out our strategic plan for the, the journal, we decided that inclusivity uh, was, was going to be our calling card. So Excellent. Uh, specifically, what we were interested in is um, hearing about perspectives from outside of the United States. Um, okay, very good. A lot of the what we understand in the marketing research around marketing and public policy um, grew out of working with some of the important agencies that uh, shape uh, influence uh, consumer well-being uh, in the United States, like the Food and Drug Administration, um, uh, like the Federal Trade Commission, FDA. for example. Yeah. Um, now, what we have focused on is expanding outward and basically opening up our tent. Internationalizing. So you're moving from U.S.-centric to a global perspective. That's very good to hear. Uh, keep going. Um, in addition to that, we also know that um, part of this conversation has to be voices that we haven't heard from in the past. And um, so we also, as part of our second pillar, was focused on diverse perspectives, bringing in voices from underrepresented communities into the conversation of the journal. And um, as editors, we took some concrete steps in that direction. Um, for example, um, one of the things I'm very excited about is we've started a curation series and our inaugural curation for the journal was focused on race, public policy and the marketplace. And so we pulled together a scholar, uh, a team of scholars that were uh, a global team uh, who have been thinking about these topics for decades um, to talk about uh, what do we know today and what do we still need to understand from a research standpoint. And I'm um, excited because I feel that this is going to 
help to kick off uh, maybe a renaissance of research in the area of, you know, uh, what can we learn from underrepresented communities? How can firms connect with these communities in a way that um, is good for the company and also uh, makes communities and individuals in those communities feel uh, valued and respected? Um, and I, I feel that this is in everyone's long-term best interest. Yeah, I think that's a great initiative. I've got to applaud you and your team for that. Um, now, you mentioned that this is nothing could be more appropriate at this time than that, because you know we're facing a public health crisis that calls for um, better uh, food consumption, that calls for better practices, health practices, that calls for more inclusivity, um, that calls for more diversity and equity, and making sure that we as a uh, society, as a group, progress together. And I appreciate you looking at the international dimension as well, bringing diverse cultures also into play. Now, good to hear that this is where you're moving forward or where you're seeing uh, the growth might be. Um, let me try to understand you, not as a researcher, but more as a person now, what, what is Maura Scott like when she's not a researcher or an editor? Fine. Um, well, tell us something about what you do for fun. Sure. Yeah. So um, I count myself very fortunate that um, my husband's also a marketing professor. And um, so we get to work together. And uh, one of the oh. uh, Martin Mende, he's in uh, my yes, department. And um, so one of the beauties, I think, of working closely together is that we also then have very similar schedules. Um, which okay. makes it very easy for us to not just work together, but also travel together, which is something we both love. Um, I love learning about new cultures. Um, certainly that in influenced my vision for the journal. I think um, we're all better when we learn from each other and the more people in that conversation, the merrier. Um, so I like to get out and um, find out about uh, different worldviews. Um, and in addition to that, um, I have a very large, very close-knit family who, that is also sprinkled all over. And so I like to travel and visit them as well. <laughs> very good. So you're an avid traveler. Unfortunately, you're grounded a little bit now during, due to COVID-19. But hopefully, things uh, after vaccinations, you may be able to uh, travel a little bit more frequently and safely. So that's great to know about your other side. Now, before we close this uh, interview, I wanted to ask you for your final thoughts on, you know, we have great uh, viewers. We have students, former students, uh, executives, public policy officials, government executives, as you right, pointed out, the different stakeholders. We have other educators, researchers. Uh, what would be your message to them um, in terms of how, what would you like them to be prepared for a future, uh, the next three to five years. So what should they be doing differently or what should they be focusing on as they move forward? Yeah, I, uh, from my point of view, and, and this uh, guides my own research, I think that um, tackling the question of how to make 
financial services and healthcare services um, uh, accessible and equitable and for affordable, all people yeah. um, is uh, paramount um, to the, the well-being of society. And so I, I think regardless of where our little piece of that puzzle plugs in, uh, thinking about inclusivity and well-being as we approach those questions is, uh, is critical at this stage. Very good. I'm glad that that's a great message forward. And uh, you had mentioned some concrete steps. So um, perhaps viewers and listeners can look at your research, your editorial, and get a little bit more insight and detail on all the uh, suggestions that you have to make. Thank you, Maura. You've been a wonderful host and it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And we wish you great uh, success in the rest of your research efforts and your editorial efforts and um, look forward to continuing to read your research in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was a, a great privilege and um, I appreciate you inviting me.